thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Talk Radio and you are listening live. So, a little later than hoped, but we're here now and we're live. Good morning. Welcome to the Monday morning break with me, Nigel Poole, broadcasting live from Spain. Our topic this morning is the ghost children, that disturbing number of kids who just haven't come back to school post-pandemic. I'm joined by Beth Prescott from the Centre for Social Justice and later by Carol Taylor and and Gary Dixon, pastoral staff for the Petersfield School. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And remember, this is also your show on Teachers Talk Radio. We want to hear from you, so call in and we'll try and involve you in the actual show as it goes ahead. So, once we get rid of the music, we'll call in with my first guest, which is Beth Prescott from the Centre for Social Justice. Hi, Beth, are you there? Hi, Nigel, yes, can you hear me? Oh, wow, this is working. Yes, I can. <laughs> it's always it's nervous, good. isn't it, when you're not quite sure if the technology is going to work or not? Oh, my goodness me. No, we had a bit of a, a shaky start, and thanks to all the people that talk radio towers who just about got me on air on time my own fault as usual so beth you work for the center for social justice which um i would characterize as an independent think tank is that correct yes yeah yeah that that that's me yeah and i'm a senior researcher on the education team there fantastic so uh this report that the csj brought out recently was called lost and not found wasn't it Yes, yeah, and this was a report, it, it was a report as part of a series of reports the CSJ have done over the last couple of years, raising awareness about the issue of persistent and severe absence from school. So what uh, prompted this latest report then? Great, yeah, so to start with, I'll take you back a couple of years where we were he- the CSJ were hearing on the front line from charities and schools in grassroots that the issue of absence was becoming more and more prominent and therefore, and this was before I joined the CSJ, the team at the right, time right. started to look into the data from the Department of Education and found that both persistent and severe absence was increasing. And since then, we've continued to track this da- these data releases and notice the kind of continual increases in the data we're seeing. OK, um, just so we can be clear, because I, I don't think probably anybody really quite understands this terminology, what's severe absence? Great, yeah. So severe absence is when a child is missing 50% or more of their their school. So think of it on average as missing more than two and a half days per week. So these are children yeah, who are absent more than they are present. And when I refer to persistent absence as well, just for context, that's when they're missing more than 10%, so the equivalent of more than half a day per week on average. Okay, and that's the figure we used to use to say, if you do that, your GCSE grades will go down by one level, of course. The persistent absence figure. So, look in your report, the, the, which I've read, and it's, it's it's both fascinating and a bit heartbreaking to say the least. 
The DfE said that the figures are much worse post-pandemic, but we can't blame the pandemic. I don't get what they meant by that. Um, and this came up in an interview I heard on the media where the report was released. And there was a deputy head from Sunderland talking, and he said, essentially what's happened post-pandemic is the social contract has uh, been broken. Um, so what do they mean? Do they mean that the, those who broke the social contract were a small minority pre-pandemic, which has now grown to a sizable minority post-pandemic? So before the pandemic, the persistent absence rates were hovering around 11%. Um, yeah. And then following school shutdowns, this shot up to sort of in the year 21, 22, so 22.5%. Yeah. So you can see how much that has increased. So it was an issue pre-pandemic, but since the pandemic, it has just absolutely shot up to record levels. Okay. Um, and is this all kids or are there distinctions between groups? You know, is it is it lower in primary and higher in secondary, I'm guessing? And so on, let's talk through a few of those those groups. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, you've just mentioned primary and secondary. Secondary schools, we do see have higher rates of persistence and severe absence. Um, yeah. Other notable characteristics, we see that children who are eligible for free school meals are more likely to be persistently or severely absent. Um, yeah. Children living in the most disadvantaged areas, um, children receiving SEND support or with an EHCP plan, and, and even regionally, um, patterns of absence vary across England. Um, yeah. Consistently, we're seeing in areas like Yorkshire and the Humber and the North East and the South West are some of the highest absence rates. Yeah, that's I noticed that. And is there a bit of a North-South split on this, do you think? Um, I don't think there's so much of a North-South split, but there is different regional divides on that. As I've mentioned, okay. some of the highest rates, you've got, yes, Yorkshire and the Humber and the North East, but you've also got the South West. Oh, okay. So a slightly more rural area, maybe, or, or maybe it's dominated by Bristol. Who knows? Um, what about the difference between what we call vulnerable students and what I'll just call resilient students? What, what's the big difference there? Well, we, um, we, I mean, it'd be, we did a, recently, we did a, uh, an inquiry into absence and the reasons behind absence that kind of we wanted to mm. dig deeper because what I've just told you there are kind of what the, the official data shows. And we kind of wanted to look into this a bit deeper and to speak to people on the front line. Um, so yeah. we held focus groups with local authorities, um, alternative provisions and charities working with children who are absent or disengaged from school. And we found a number of insights as to reasons for absence and, and kind of factors affecting children that might make them more vulnerable to absence. And, and this kind of reflected some of the national data. So we found that yeah. um, anxiety, anxiety mental, mental health is a big driver. Yeah. Um, low income and disadvantage, special educational needs um, and, and things like that are all seen as, as drivers for absence reflected both in the official statistics and in the additional inquiry that we did. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. I, I picked out a few of the themes that you'd found in the report about why these kids are staying away. And, and you mentioned mental health. It is, it's, it's the giant elephant in the educational room, isn't it? It's just you know, we just do not seem to have the capacity to help. We heard as part of our inquiry, I've just mentioned that, um, yeah. that well, it was consistently brought up throughout the different focus groups as one of the biggest drivers as anxiety. Yeah. We heard of a growing cohort of children who are simply too anxious to leave the house. It's not just that they're not going to school, they're not leaving the house, full yeah. stop. And we, we, we did hear as well how mental health difficulties have become more widespread in recent years. 
and yeah. children are struggling to access the mental health support that they need in a timely manner. And while yeah. they're waiting for that support, in the meantime, they're still being absent from school. Absolutely. And in fact, I, you know, I was a head teacher for years. And um, even when I was there, which is about seven years ago as a head, you know, the CAMS waiting list, the Child and Adult Mental Health Service, uh, the, the CAMS waiting list was six months. I bet it's longer now. In fact, I heard in a report from The Guardian last week that they are triaging children with, um, who've made attempts on their own lives and that if, if they only make one attempt, they don't automatically qualify for live streaming. Uh, sorry, it's not live streaming, for, um, uh, for counselling. It's unbelievable. So, listen, you made lots of recommendations in your report. Um, which I think are really a, a helpful addition to the discourse. Um, should we go through some of these and have a look at what you've got um, and what you've said? Let's talk about the first one, which was to um, roll out a, a programme of attendance mentors. Tell me what you meant. Brilliant. Yeah, of course. So just to give context to this recommendation, one of yeah. the main factors that came up time and time again throughout our absence inquiry was the need for whole family support often underlying absence, as we've just discussed, are wider, more complex factors um, affecting the children and their family. And so what we yeah. saw as really important as well during this inquiry was the value of relational work. So building yeah. a, a constructive, positive relationship with the children and their family to understand the challenges that they are facing and to help get, support mm. the family and get the child back into school. Yeah. And therefore, we want to see a national programme of these 2000 attendance mentors who will work with the families and be that kind of trusted uh, point of contact with the families to understand and to remove some of these underlying barriers to school attendance. Yeah, it would be nice if it happened, wouldn't it? And uh, you, you estimated at 80 million a year and found yeah, that, you, thought you could find a, a funding stream that already existed, is that right? Yeah, we've estimated that this could cost around 80 million pounds a year. We've suggested this could be funded through the existing Supporting Families programme. Um, now, the, the government are, have already taken some welcome steps in that they are trialling attendance advisors, but it's okay. being done on kind of a small pilot scale at the moment. And right. what we want to see is just these attendance mentors rolled out nationally as quickly as yeah. possible, because kind of every day that we're delaying action is a day that, you know, a child is missing school or a child is going without that support. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and it's interesting that some of the things that used to be talked about that were pretty much uh, present a few years back were things like the, the TAC, the team around the child, and multi-agency meetings about kids. And I don't feel that they're carrying on the same way they used to. Um, and that is a shame. And of course, in schools, we have the good old EWO, um, who, you know, many of whom we lost when we academized, rightly or wrongly. So it is a, it's a real problem. It's certainly the first thing we need to do. Um, what else have you got on your list of recommendations that you'd really like to highlight? Great, yeah, so it's interesting how you mentioned around the multi-agency working. Yeah. So recently, again, another action that the government, a welcome step the government did take was to issue new attendance guidance, setting out yeah. multi, a multi-agency multi approach, which is so mm -hmm. important. Um, but what we heard time and time again through our inquiries, I guess um, how this wasn't, like because this is a non-statutory guidance uh, yeah. it was being implemented differently and in different ways and what yeah. we want to see is is the guidance on attendance being made statutory uh, so this yeah. would help ensure every child every family can access the appropriate support they need um, yeah. along with this and a national program of attendance mentors it removed the current postcode lottery for support for options that we are currently seeing yes indeed and in fact I'm going to ask my own uh, practitioners that I, I, I've uh, set up for the 
later in the interview, what they're finding happening in their little postcode as well. It'll be interesting to see. Um, okay, thank you. Um, other recommendations we said were, you know, improve school attendance data. It's interesting, isn't it? I actually went and had a look at the minutes of the AAA uh, meeting group. Uh, have you heard of this lot, the Attendance Action Alliance? Yes, yeah, yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, what did, what did you find in the minutes then? That's interesting. Well, it was interesting. I mean, the irony was, this is chaired by Nick Gibb, the schools minister, uh, and it's got a lot of the great and the good on the committee. So the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, uh, the, the representative of the Children's Services, uh, the director, Steve Crocker, Jeff Barton from ASCO, people like that. Really, you know, people who have a, a, a real sort of stake in children's uh, futures. Uh, ironically, most of them were missing the meeting, which I thought was slightly ironic, given it was about attendance. Um, they get up-to-date figures. Um, they were just saying, you know, we need to push on with things. There wasn't really much concrete there at the moment. Um, and I hope that isn't going to be the future that we see, that people just keep saying it's a dreadful shame and not doing an awful lot. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are seeing some action from government and they are aware this yeah. is an issue, but we're just kind of pushing for that kind of all-expansive, every child, nationwide yeah. support as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. And even on data, so on the data, we have seen some progress over recent years in the data yeah. that is available for public release. Uh, and, and that has been made some progress. But again, we just want to see more. Um, so in our yeah. report, you mentioned, we want to see the data examining attendance patterns at an individual and school level. Yes. Um, yeah. And this being incorporated into the attendance dashboard, because the more we know about this and the more we see about this, the more we can yeah. understand and tackle it. But also, you know, say if, like when it shot up during the pandemic and we only saw yeah. it kind of later on if we had that kind of live constant data it would allow us to really track and to see when it is starting to spike and to take action yeah. sooner yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um and i think you know the more we can do on that the better there are you know it's all about the algorithms but it's about humans actually solving the problems once the algorithms identify the patterns isn't it um so what about the idea of um fines for non-attendance. Do, do you think they're working? Does your research show that? So this was, we heard kind of multiple people speaking about fines in our inquiry. And what we heard was um, that standalone, um, they are not as effective, but when used perhaps in, in correlation with wider wraparound support, that they can have a role. Um, yeah. And so part, what, part of where our recommendations is, we're calling for a review on fines to kind of see the conditions under which these can improve attendance and almost yeah. the conditions they don't improve attendance kind of would truly understand kind of what best practice is around them yeah indeed i mean I, from my own experience I, I never issued one um you know for my sort of you know persistent and severe absence kids i really didn't see the point of them i understand that there's something you might use but there's really not a lot of point in finding people who probably haven't got a lot of money in the first place and uh, that's one of the things i think is going to come out of that review straight away i hope yeah, absolutely. And, and also when um, what we don't want is for it to create one of the other things is for um, for it to create a perverse incentive for a parent to take their child out of school to avoid that fine. We want to make sure that they, they're getting the support they need. And like I said, sometimes they may have a role, but it's just part of a much wider wraparound support that helps yeah. understand the reasons for absence, uh, tackles yeah. those reasons for absence and offers support to the children and families. Yeah, absolutely. I did make one exception where I would have been delighted to find people, which was the skiers. They always got on my nerves. The ones who went away uh, during term time to go on a skiing holiday, I thought, well, if you can afford to ski, I really should find you. I never carried through, but it made me grumpy, I must admit. So <laughs> what's, worrying, what's worrying me is what you said in your report about 
what are these kids actually up to when they're in the home rather than school? What are the things and the influences that are maybe affecting them? Yeah, so what we heard during our inquiry, I mean, some people might have perhaps a kind of stereotypical general image of truancy, of perhaps um, kids kind of, you know, uh, going off school and kind of being around town. But what we actually heard was yeah. quite different. And um, while a small minority of children might still be doing this, what we actually heard was a lot of the children, uh, they're at home. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they're too anxious to leave the house. They're perhaps spending the day in, in their bedroom, kind of, uh, yeah, too anxious to physically do anything. We did hear of, unfortunately, this can still trigger um, kind of concerns we heard of, for example, of a rise in uh, gaming addictions, yeah. which might have developed during the pandemic when children Absolutely. were at home. Um, and, and, and so we heard of rises in that. So even when they're at home, there are still some kind of concerns around vulnerabilities there. Absolutely. And, and I, I saw mention of uh, potential online grooming happening, etc. Um, it, it's a very worrying situation, isn't it, for those kids and their, their families? Okay, um, I had a, a few thoughts as well. Um, the curriculum, was that raised by your, uh, your uh, interview, interviewees about uh, as an issue? So a we heard of a couple of examples relating to that. Um, so we did hear of kind of children who perhaps have become disengaged with the curriculum, children who perhaps their, uh, perhaps their main skills aren't in the kind of core academic subjects, but they do lie yeah. elsewhere. Uh, but yeah. perhaps they're not getting that same kind of recognition and fulfillment from school in those subjects and so generally yeah. feeling disengaged. Uh, we heard of perhaps a, a shift in attitude towards schools. Um, this might be following the pandemic or this, some of this will have existed beforehand. Where, yeah. say, for example, yeah. if a child is in a family where the parents and the grandparents didn't particularly uh, do well in school or didn't particularly like school, but they are succeeding and thriving in their careers yeah. despite that, the child might kind of see that example and the parents themselves might not see um, the, the benefit yeah. of the child being in school. And again, this has been exacerbated by kind of school shutdowns where children and parents saw that they could home school. Um, and yeah. so we have seen kind of like a shift in the culture towards that and that slight disengagement in the curriculum for children who perhaps, like I said, their, their skills and talents lie elsewhere from the core academic subject. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'll talk to my practitioners about this, but I don't think the EBAC has helped in one bit with this sort of tight focus on academic subjects. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned home ed um, just briefly there, and, and that's something that I picked up in, in the report. And then when I looked into other uh, meetings, minutes and things, so the, the, the Association of Children's uh, Services directors, they were uh, very concerned about home ed. Um, and you know they, they found a lot of students, 81,000 students on home ed, um, which is a staggering figure. Um, why do you think people are going to home ed? Did you pick anything up about that? Yes, yeah, so just to, for context for listeners, um, there's a slight difference between kind of absence and home education. So yeah, absence absolutely. is when a child is on the school yeah. role but not attending school. Home yeah. education is when the child is, is not on the school role and officially being educated at home. Um, now, we actually did another report into this recently, and we found that many, many parents are doing an amazing job of home education, and it is absolutely yeah. their right to choose to home educate their child, and that right should always be enshrined. But there are a, 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 a minority of children for whom perhaps they've been um, off-rolled, or it might be that their parents right. have withdrawn their child because they, fe they felt their needs weren't being met in school. This could be SEM needs, it could be mental health needs. Yeah. And for those children, home education might not be the best place for them um, and they might not necessarily, mm -hmm. the 
parents might not necessarily be equipped to deliver a high quality home education for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's something that's going to have to be watched as well, because you're right, you know, they should have the right enshrined. Interestingly, where I work at the moment in Spain, home ed is not allowed. <laughs> you just can't do it. Everybody has to go to school, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, but, and we, you know, we did uh, find actually that, sorry, go on. Go on, no, you go ahead. Sorry. So we did find actually that England is an international outlier in the respect of yeah. um, kind of like oversight of home education, where other European countries yeah. are more, more stringent in the kind of oversight yeah. of it. Yeah, indeed. Listen, um, what sort of uh, traction have you got so far from the government? You talked about a pilot scheme on the, um, the attendance monitors. Is there any sign? Because I, I suspect with your think tank, it probably has a little bit of traction with the current government. Have you heard anything from them about what more they might want to do? Great, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, the government have, have got the pilot of the attendance advisors. Um, yeah. They have brought in this um, new guidance. They are definitely taking some action. Uh, yeah. But what we what we want to see is that that action just being rolled out nationally mm -hmm. uh, and quickly. So first and foremost, as I mentioned, and I'll uh, I'll keep talking about it until I'm blue in the face. We want to see this national program of attendance bent off so that yeah. every single child who is struggling, who is absent from school, is getting that wraparound yeah. support and care that they need. Yeah. And it not just being kind of like a specific area or a specific postcode that's kind of no. slowly rolling out. While in the meantime, more and more yeah. children are being absent from school and yeah. not getting the support that they need. So action is being taken, but just not enough right now. No, no, and not fast enough, clearly. And I think the big action that needs to be taken alongside that has to be, they just have to ramp up the, the mental health services for people because it is, it's terrifying, you know. And uh, th this commitment that we've had from previously, from Theresa May, and I don't know how many prime ministers we've had since then, about mental health, I'm not sure how that's reflected on the ground in schools. So, but I'm sure we'll find out whether everybody's got their attempt, you know, their mental health mentors in school. I'm not sure they have. Um, you've probably heard that one of our other recommendations was about that and rolling out, we want them to roll out that fact, that mental yeah. health needs in schools so that, that every school can have a mental health approach to support. Absolutely, which is, is going to be vital, but uh, let's hope it comes soon. Okay, listen, Beth, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. I've got a break for the news in a moment. So um, thank you ever so much for joining me this morning, being my first ever guest. We were slightly late, my fault, but um, uh, it's been a pleasure to hear from you and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. So we're going to move to the news, ladies and gentlemen, after which I really hope to be able to uh, contact a couple of uh, outstanding practitioners from a, a school in the south of England, uh, which are... Gary Dixon and Carol Taylor. They have pastoral roles at the Petersfield School in, in Hampshire, where well, let's just test up some of the things that have happened uh, that we've discussed and see what they find on the ground in an, what I would describe as a very extraordinary, ordinary school. But in the meantime, let's hope this news plays. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this 
is Teachers Talk Radio News. During his visit to Northern Ireland, US President Joe Biden suggested in a speech at Ulster University that students are increasingly persuaded to stay at home rather than seek careers abroad. The speech, reported in the Belfast Telegraph, refers to young people, instead of fleeing for opportunities elsewhere, can see their futures and careers for themselves that speak to unlimited possibilities here. However, the article goes on to feature comments from Anne Watt, Director of Political Research Group Pivotal, who says that whilst she welcomed the positive nature of the comments, Northern Ireland still has a long way to go before the battle to keep the most promising students can be won. She went on to say there is evidence in her organisation's research that significant economic migration could be worsening, not improving. The problem of young people leaving Northern Ireland to study elsewhere and not returning has been around for years, and many seem to see the President's words as aspirational rather than accurate. Ms Watts also raised the point that as students leave Northern Ireland, other students from the UK and further afield are not coming in the same numbers. The country, therefore, cannot retain or regain talent, and political instability has not helped matters. In order for Northern Ireland to meet the aspirations raised in Biden's speech, talent needs to stay at home. The Daily Mirror reports on figures released by the Department for Education, which show more than 140,000 schoolchildren were severely absent in the summer of 2022. The paper refers to these young people as ghost children, and raises concerns that this pattern is continuing in the current academic year. The Department for Education says the term severely absent refers to children of school age who are not receiving a suitable education either with a teacher or homeschooling. They are usually those with attendance below 50%. The reasons for being away from school include anxiety, mental health, special educational needs and disabilities, but concerns arise around young people who are likely extremely vulnerable. Last year, the Children's Commissioner also released a report focusing on school attendance, but, according to DfE figures, attendance to schools across England has largely failed to recover to pre-pandemic levels. Latest figures released by the DfE has persistent absence at 22.4%. These are pupils with below 90% attendance, although this is suggested as being a result of illness towards the end of the autumn term. According to FE Week, the Department for Education has launched a £1 million contract for an organisation to drive new T-level employment placements. The documents explain that the DfE is seeking a potential supplier to engage with employers to develop their knowledge and understanding of T-levels, as well as helping them to plan and prepare to deliver high-quality industry placements. T-level courses were first launched in 2020 and feature a mandatory placement with an employer totalling 45 days or 315 hours. There are now 16 T-levels available with another two due to launch this September. As the provision of the qualifications has grown, so has the need for placements. The DfE has offered financial support to employers offering placements, but uptake has not been high, as employers cite red tape and cost pressures as reasons the courses are unattractive. Finally, as the row over teacher pay and conditions as well as concern over recruitment continues, the Evening Standard featured a report on Londoners turning their back on teaching and flocking to better paid jobs in the city. 
A combination of the availability of better paid jobs and the high cost of living in the capital is putting Londoners off teaching, according to school leaders. Whilst a DfE spokesperson spoke about the bursaries and scholarships on offer for those training in key subjects such as maths, physics and computing, many took to social media to highlight the issues facing teachers in the capital, such as the difficulty in buying or renting property, when the average teacher salary in inner London is £47,000, but the average property price is over £600,000. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Oh, this week I'm going to talk about hidden spy cameras. Do you know who is filming you? Modern cameras can be as small as a pinhead and embedded in things like pens, buttons, and while researching this, I even found one built into the centre of a crosshead screw. Online shopping sites blatantly sell spying devices such as smoke alarms with built-in spy cameras. There have been high-profile cases in the media of people misusing spy cameras, but as I investigated further, one statistic stood out. 11% of people that use Airbnb reported finding hidden cameras. As I continue to dig around for a UK statistic, the figure dropped to 10%. That's 1 in 10 people. Now, obviously, this is not solely limited to Airbnb. They just seem to be the company that has the most media coverage. So, for those of you that are concerned, my next investigation was how to detect a hidden camera. Here are the top pieces of advice I've found. You can buy devices that are designed to detect cameras. They start at about £40 and utilise most of the other methods I'm about to talk about. You can buy an app for your phone. If worried, don't buy it before you go. Some apps have a free trial period. Use that to scan the areas you're concerned with. Visual checks. Look for items that seem out of place. A clock pointing at the bed. A random USB dongle in a wall socket. Shine your phone torch at suspected items. Camera lenses will light up, helping you identify them. In the dark, a lot of cameras will use infrared to continue to get pictures. This can be seen via your phone camera. Look through your phone around the room in the dark and watch for suspicious dots of light. Please remember, if we turn this statistic around, 9 out of 10 places are not covertly trying to film you, and that statistic was good enough for very popular cat food in the past. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back in the room. Um, the most astute amongst you may have noticed that what was probably a news report we've heard before. My apologies, I'm sure we'll get the the latest news, but it did actually highlight the whole absence issue. Now, um, I'm going to talk to whoever this is. Who is that? Hello? Hello, this is Gary. <laughs> Hello, Gary. This is Gary Dixon. Uh, nice to talk to you. Um, have you got your colleague around? Is she trying I to get do. Um, Carol is trying to join. I think she's already clicked the join that okay, is waiting. Let her in. Okay, um, uh, she's in, I think. Uh, there we go. Should... Perfect. Okay. Um, so, let me just introduce both of you. Carol, are you there? I am, Nigel. Hi. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. This is going well. Just. <laughs> so my guests now are two outstanding practitioners from uh, a school in the south of England. This is a large academy in a, in a market town in Petersfield in Hampshire, um, which it's a funny little town. I know it well. Um, I know Carol well. Gary is new to me. Um, but we're going to talk about how absence has impacted upon what is a, a incredibly good school, but you know, every school has these issues to deal with. So um, 
Guys, have you dis discerned an increase in absence post-pandemic, either of you? Um, yes, of course. I mean, you know, national absence, as we all know, is significantly lower um, than pre-COVID times. Um, I would say that we're currently around 3% lower than we would have been pre-COVID at this time of year. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, for your school, that may not be too... That, what would that be in the number of kids, do you think? Do you think, on a regular basis? Is that something you um, can work out? So, oh, yeah, it, it, okay. I have to work out my, my math skills here now, Nigel, you're okay. testing me. Don't uh, worry about it. So I would say around 50 children, yes. Okay, out of a school population of what, 1,300, something like that? Yeah, just under 1,400. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, yeah. So it's a significant number of kids, isn't it? Um, how hard has it been, either Gary or Carol, to get these hard-to-reach families, to get to them and get those kids back into school? How hard is it proving? So initially, it was extremely difficult, as I'm sure many schools have found. Um, yeah. We, in the past year, have actually restructured pastorally to try and to uh, respond to the increased level of demand. Okay. Um, we oh, really? originally only had um, two pupil support workers, um, mm. non-teachers, um, right. to cater for the whole of the school, which was you know, sufficient at the time. Um, yeah. Since COVID, we've had to up that to uh, an assistant leader for every year leader. So we have an assistant non-teaching member of staff um, okay. associated with each year group now. So these are funded posts of non-teachers. What are their jobs then? What do they have to do? Um, well, fundamentally to assist uh, each of the year leaders to oversee the right. year group. Attendance is one of their key areas. Uh, yeah. along with trying to support them with mental yeah. health concerns and, and various other okay. uh, needs. Um, so they will check, will check attendance daily, um, will make the um, first day phone calls um, and make sure okay. that they try and keep on top of the day-to-day -day attendance. Okay, so does anybody actually go out to the homes to try and connect with these kids and their families? Um, so, yes, we do have a full-time attendance officer as well, okay. um, who yeah. will, yes, so she will go and do the um, homeschool liaisons. Um, quite often she'll go with the assistant year leader as well oh, right. um, okay. in order to make sure that they, you know, can build up those relationships um, yeah. and then talk about the, the reasons for the, you know, the low or non-attendance to school. Okay, so... Home visits and stuff happening because, of course, once we lost the EWO service, you know, when you academized, it, it needed to be replaced, didn't it? So, this is your sort of direct replacement, I guess. Um, yeah, we also uh, can gain access to family support workers through uh -huh. the Hampshire Early Help Hub. Um, okay. So, depending on the level of need of the family, um, yeah. quite often we can access the, those support workers who will go into the family home and work through the difficulties and come up with strategies um, huh. and we'll obviously liaise with us as a school as well to see what we can do to, to make it work yeah. for each of the families. Well that's encouraging that there is help there because you know the, the, the impression we get is that you know it's very hard to access help but you are finding some. We are finding some. It is difficult to access the help. I mean, everybody yeah. is overwhelmed, aren't they? It's, yeah, absolutely. You know, and everybody's fighting for the the, the, the same support, the same programs yeah. that, that are on offer. 
um, that that don't require the extra funding from the schools themselves. So it does make yeah. it really difficult. And that naturally leads me on to talk to about things like CAMS. Um, what's the sort of picture on the ground for CAMS these days? I mean, we've had, um, I would say in my year group, I've probably had about 10 to 12, I would say, emotionally based school avoidance flagged up in some way this year. Um, and I would say three of those we've helped do referrals for um, to CAMS. And most of those are getting back to us at saying about two years. <laughs> no, you're kidding. No. That is ridiculous. Um, I know, and and that and that's actually been proven in how slow the response has been to even the the, the start of doing the referrals and everything. It's been very slow, um, yeah. and you know I, I do feel for them. It it, it it must be the catch up from COVID, and you know that that knock on effect. Yeah. Um, and I, I do feel for the parents because, you know, six months would be the usual, I suppose. But now we're looking at two years as, as an average. Yeah. And even six months is too long. It was six months when I left England. So, you know, yeah. nothing has improved by any means. OK, thank you. Um, so let me ask you this, Carol or Gary, but maybe Carol, because I know your responsibilities for upper school. Um, are you having kids who, who selectively attend, you know, who come to the non-EVAC subjects maybe? to dance or PE or vocational education. Are you picking up those patterns? So we do have some. Um, yeah. I would suggest that the ones that are attending um, or um, choosing to attend the non-EBAC subjects yeah. tend to be actually more lower school than upper school. Oh, really? Okay. In fact, yeah, I think by the time they get to sort of year 10 and 11, um, yeah. their priorities are their English, their maths, their science. Yeah. Okay. Um, and therefore, they are asking to attend those lessons and actually drop their option subjects if oh, they okay. can yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in order to you know be able to access and yeah. and, and, and obviously try and um, contain or deal with their mental health at the same time. Because it used to be the case, and I think you know certainly when I was ahead, we knew kids who, who would say, well, I've got you know I've got PE this week and, I, and I, I'll, I'll come in and do that because I want to get my my qualification in that, but I don't. I can't face the rest of it. So maybe if it's just a peculiar, you know, success of the Petersfield School, that's great. But um, you know, I'm worried about the fact we, that we, we do have some. Them. We do we do have yeah. some students that, that do that. They they want to come in. There's a particular yeah. year eight boy that comes to mind, um, yeah. and he likes to come into the subjects that that he enjoys. Yeah, um, and these are the hooks, aren't they? That we need to get into the kids to bring them back in, you know, and sort of, if they like one, try another, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully, you know, they will rebuild their, their confidence, I think, you know. And yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and we've had to build in a lot of um, extra programs and work that we've had to do with, with some of these students, you know, to build yeah. on their emotional resilience, yeah. um, introducing initiatives such as sort of pathways to resilience, um, oh breath work, normalising stress, um, right. physiological guidance on likely triggers and support strategies to support them. Okay. And um, these are delivered where? On how? So quite often they're delivered in-house within school through okay. our learning support department um, mm -hmm. and uh, specific staff that are qualified and able to deliver that. Okay. It's quite good as well. This year we've had um, the assistant progress leaders are also getting trained on ELSA as well. So yeah. not only can they support sort of attendance and, and whilst I'm teaching, 
and there's always someone there you've got that kind of you've got five or six people in our, our pastoral system that's, that are ready to go with that and that's been quite helpful okay so that, that sounds good these courses to help kids it's absolutely brilliant um do you identify any point sort of absence by postcode i mean i'm familiar that with the town and i know there's some a couple of areas of deprivation in the town compared to the rest of the town it, does that impact more on your stats do you think that's interesting it's not actually an analysis that we've done per se okay. yeah. um, but our fft tracker indicates that whilst we are slightly better than national the general picture across all schools is that fsm is nearly five percent lower than non-fsm yeah in uh, which is quite typical yeah. for us as well yeah um, yeah but having said that, there are a couple of year 10 students who live just minutes away from the school, mm -hmm. um, sort of the sort of area that you were talking about, um, mm -hmm. who we are finding very hard to engage. Um, yeah. They're requiring intensive support from external agencies mm -hmm. alongside our monitoring of attendance regularly and so mm. on. So, Yes, I guess in a way there are some examples I can think of already where some of the more disadvantaged areas are, are the, the, the um, are where the families are that are hardest to reach. Yeah, and always have been, I guess, but it's probably been exacerbated by the pandemic. The, um, yeah. the interesting thing was that the, I picked up on this story a couple of weeks ago and they interviewed a deputy head in Sunderland. You may have heard this. I mentioned it at the beginning of the programme. And he was talking about this social contract being broken. The idea that pre-pandemic, you know, most of the time, most families knew you get up on a Monday, you go to school, you stay there till Friday. Um, but that seems to have certainly been fractured by the pandemic and that, that not everybody sees that as their priority anymore. You, have you picked that up? And that is actually almost a regardless of social background. You know, um, I, I, yeah, I think it's very clear. And actually, if I think about in my year group, yeah, um, the, I've got probably three now that are just not in at all. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because they're all from a different social background. Yeah. And actually, it, that expectation, as you were saying, of being in school, uh, yeah. for I would say about two out of the three of the parents it is just yeah. not there. Um, no. And therefore, you know, you know what it's like if the parents aren't on your side, and you're not all singing from the same hymn sheet, you're kind yeah, of just fighting a losing battle. Um, whereas yeah. one of the parents is very much on our side and we're seeing with that particular student actually some progress being made. Um, and, and it's very clear the difference. So, yeah, I would say you, can, you definitely see that. Good. And, and with that one where the progress is being made, what do you think has been the key to, to moving it forward? Um, I think we, we've had a couple of things that have been quite useful. Our Senko here has um, created an, an, an EBSA pathway in which we've oh, got yeah. five steps. So, that uh, you know, the first one is there's no signs that there might be emotional based school avoidance. Everything is fine. The next step is there's some signs. And here are the things that if you see these signs, that mm -hmm. it's kind of like a tick sheet. Obviously, you know, not one size fits all, but just yeah. as simple as calling the parents, having a chat, notifying them that you've seen a bit of absence here and there. Um, yeah. they, they've showed signs of anxiety. And so I would say that's been really helpful because I, I, I've got probably about three students that um, in the year group that started showing those signs mm -hmm. and now they're still in school full time because we've kind of just knocked it on the head at the beginning. Um, and that's, that's and, key. So you're having yes. year seven, yeah? So that's key. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, you oversee the transition programme, I guess? 
Yes, and, and last year was quite um, interesting, a transition, um, because, um, you, you know, a lot of the issues that we're seeing, um, parents or, or teachers from junior schools will say that they think it's COVID-based. And sometimes I, I do yeah. think it is that. Um, other times, and I think myself and Arsenko were having a chat about this, and um, she was saying from some of the research she's done, actually a lot of the reasons why these why these children aren't coming into school is they possibly would have happened anyway and maybe covid has just been that trigger been that thing to kind of push push yeah. it into happening yeah. um, but i think yeah i think transition from junior school it's hard because i feel for the junior schools that you know they um they try and keep their pattern and their structures and their expectations the same but there's definitely not, and I don't think there ever will be, um, a brilliant transition from junior school to, to senior. Our, our expectations of what we expect from them is a big jump. Um, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and I think we, we yeah. do support that well. You know, we have like a build yeah. up of homework and we, mm -hmm. um, we, we slowly implement expectations. But it, it, is gonna, it is a big jump for them. And you, and you yeah. see it in year seven, and you even see it with the parents, the expectation from parents. Absolutely. Um, yeah. it, it, they find it difficult. And that's where you've got to help build that resilience so they can make the move. Because most of them are coming from, you know, small ponds into oh, a very big pond, aren't they? And that, that's always a challenge. And, you know, if your confidence is bashed, you don't want to go. And that's, that's the difficulty, isn't it, I guess? Yes, definitely. Oh. And we're looking at some junior schools where there's, um, 17 in the junior school because they're from these really small, um, yeah. you know, tiny little village junior schools. And yeah. then some of the kids are coming from junior school, there's there's 60 in a year group. Yeah. So it's, it's a real mixed bag. Okay. And that's interesting, isn't it? I think, um, have you have you got anybody doing hybrid learning anymore? Have you, are you getting requests for it post-pandemic? Uh, we are getting requests for it, um, but we, we're not <laughs> really in a position to be able to deliver no, it easily. No. We did quite a lot of it um, when yeah. we first returned to school, certainly when we were still doing the track and trace and we were sort of almost forced to, to stay at home, um, teachers yeah. and students. So we did do a lot of hybrid learning. Um, that comes with its difficulties, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. And and yeah. so we have moved away from that. Um, yeah. Instead, we do have students who are still unable to come into school for various reasons. Right. Um, and therefore, certainly um, in Key Stage 4, we are offering them alternative um, options. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I mean, we had a lot of requests, but I, I'm now working in a, uh, an international setting. Uh, and post-pandemic, a lot of the parents and kids still wanted hybrid learning alongside classroom teaching. It's not possible to do both unless you just sit, switch your Google camera on and leave it on. Um, but it, Absolutely. It's, it's just so difficult, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it's an incentive to come in, of course. So um, it's better yeah. to try and get people back in. Um, let's talk about fixed penalty notices and fines. Um, does the school ever issue them? Do they go for it? So yes, we've got back into it again. Um, we mm -hmm. were slightly restricted when we first returned, um, as was everyone. But um, yeah. we do find that they can provide a deterrent in some cases. Yeah. Um, they do need to be considered as part of the fuller picture. But we've yeah. recognised that some families have not wanted to engage in support services offered by the school or the county unless the fines have been pursued, where they've almost then be for forced into it. Yeah. And therefore, well, we can yeah. then start making progress with them. Okay. Um, 
in some so cases it's, it's worked, yeah. in others, obviously, it's still proving difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, as Beth herself said, that, you know, there needs to be a review about the effectiveness of the, of the fines and how they're imposed. And, mm. you know, I, I read that she was talking about how parents will weigh up the different fines you get for doing home ed badly compared with willfully not bringing your kids to school. And it's cheaper in terms of fines to do home ed badly. <laughs> it's just a ridiculous yeah. bartering and balancing act that you have to do. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so tell, tell me about how you've had any support for catch-up programs post-pandemic. Did you get anything? Are you doing anything like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been doing lots of different support in terms of post-pandemic. Um, as a whole school level, there's definitely been an understanding that there is a, a gap um, yeah. in learning. Um, particularly with literacy, it's been a huge focus as, yeah. as uh, an English teacher. Um, I'm very much hot on that anyway. Um, yeah. but, but even in the classroom, you do see a big gap. And so as a school, literacy has been a main focus across all subjects mm -hmm. to try and kind of bridge that gap. Um, okay. and, and I think it is an ongoing thing. I think that we're only now starting to see the, 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 the gaps, the issues, the Absolutely. problems, the, the yeah. missing yeah. education yeah. and knowledge. Yeah, I mean, and interestingly, I, even today I was picking up stories that um, head teachers and schools are concerned about the, the, the lingering impact of the pandemic on even this summer's results. I mean, are you seeing that a little bit or not? Are you worried? <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think this is going to continue for a number of years, um, yeah. this, this aftermath, um, the fact that... Yeah even the students now in year 10 and 11, um, they very much had a, an affected start to their secondary school career, didn't they? Yeah, and yeah, they did, and yeah. therefore yeah. that is definitely showing through. Um, yeah. It's quite evident really for us, even in year 10 at the moment, um, where we're still dealing with that aftermath. And a lot of that is yeah. due to students who are just not able to come in. Um, they're, yeah. they're really struggling to even leave the house. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of families yeah. became um, quite comfortable, didn't they, with being at home, learning from yeah. home, yeah, I um, think so. having the children at home as well. So it's it, it has proved very difficult. And we all know that attendance has a direct impact on progress. Um, yeah. And therefore, you know, it, it is still a problem. Um, but yeah. we're hoping that within the next three or four years that we can start moving through it. It's definitely had an impact and it still is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it did for, for us in Spain too. We saw that and we, we saw it all the way through these year groups. I still think it is. I've got year 13s who had fractured and fragmented year 12s because even after the worst of the pandemic, they were still in and out of school catching COVID. We may not have been locked down, but they were missing it individually. And that's been an issue, I think, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah. My son actually did take his exams uh, in year 11 and his first set of exams were in year 13 last year, yeah. Uh, yeah. which came as a bit of a shock to him, to be honest, because <laughs> he just hadn't been through that no. process. No, I know. Um, and it's hard. And, yeah. And, yeah, and we don't want to make it worse for them, but we have to get them to practice it, don't we? So listen. We do, um, and, and I think um, 
just a note on that, you know, we've only just started getting our year nines and tens back into the hall to say his oh, yes, experience of, of, yeah. of uh, exams. And a lot of them you yes. can see, you know, especially year nines, they are they're freaking them out a little bit um, yes. because they, there's been no expectation of that. And then, you know, but as you said, we do have to draw a line at some point and, and get back to it. Yeah, we do. And you're right. It is that moment where you put them back in the hall and say, you know, get on with it, guys. And it's tricky <laughs> because they haven't done it for a long time and you really feel for them. Uh, yeah, we found that too. It's definitely true. So listen, what, before I finish, um, I, I would just stress that I'm talking to people who are working in an extremely good school. In fact, we might call it outstanding, mightn't we? Um, so, <laughs> well, know, why yes. <laughs> why yes, I think we should say that, shouldn't we? Just to, to keep your boss happy uh, and make sure that we've given it a good yeah. plug. But, and you're telling me all this from a position of strength, which is very important to know. I'm extremely grateful for you joining me on my first show, which has not been without its technical glitches. But I think at this point, I'm going to just say uh, thank you to both of you. I, just one other question. Do they still run attendance centres in towns for you know, the vulnerable kids? I remember we used to be able to um, help a, a young person who might have, you know, for example, an eating disorder to, to go somewhere small um, in, in terms of small scale and just do some work there. Are those spaces still available? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, I think there are alternative really? options oh these days that are run through the, yeah. the, council, the county um, where yeah. we will, we will utilise um, the early help hub and depending on yeah. the level of need, um, they will be offered um, su sufficient support. Um, even okay. through sort of social prescribers, um, through the GP right. yeah. service and things like that. So not quite the same, but just no. a, a, a different option. Um, but they're definitely there and they're definitely yeah. utilised quite heavily, actually. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I might imagine some of those uh, medical issues have in, increased too post-pandemic. I'm not, you know, I'm sure they would have done. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh well. This. <laughs> let's hope this has been a positive chat and an encouraging one. <laughs> I, you know, I think some of the ideas you've had uh, are fantastic in terms of what you do with the courses, the resilience building, etc. It's all terrific. And so, Carol, Gary, I'm absolutely uh, delighted that you were able to join me eventually. Uh, and I'm going to sign you out and say thank you very much. Thank you for thank having you. us. Nice catch up. <laughs> okay. So. That's I can hear somebody eating an apple. Do I connect you? Um, that's definitely an apple noise. Should we get rid of them? Uh, right, one's gone, the other one's going. So, what have we learned this morning so far? I think the most important thing to take away from this program is that these are not just there's somebody still there. Get off the line. Who is it? Uh, I'm going to unconnect you. There, he's gone. <laughs> I can be rude to him. Um, the most important thing to take away from this programme is these are not just statistics. These are real children, real families who are clearly in some really difficult places. And obviously there's a sort of, you know, pie in the sky hope at DFE level. Um, but I don't see an awful lot of action because as usual, there doesn't seem to be a lot of money. And there really is a heck of a lot of a ground to make up after those, you know, so-called austerity years, I have no doubt. There clearly needs, as Beth pointed out, um, and as Carol and Gary were, were mentioning, there needs to be a lot more multi-agency collaboration, um, presuming, of course, that there are staff still in those agencies, and I know that's always been the problem. CAMs in, in, in my area in Hampshire, when I worked there, were always overwhelmed, and these are very well-meaning people, they just didn't have the capacity. 
as ever. We have to stress that schools are utterly heroic in their efforts with all these kids and families. And they're doing this on top of, you know, what sometimes we describe core purpose, that is to, you know, educate and teach, etc. They're doing an amazing job across the country, and I applaud you all. And it does seem to me obvious that a lot of what has passed for policy in the, in the last 10 years, notwithstanding the pandemic, has actually exacerbated this situation, whether it's, you know, accountability measures, the introduction of the EVAC, the move away from local authorities, rightly or wrongly, you know, it, it puts the onus right back on schools. It's a, a big challenge for Gillian Keegan and Nick Gubb, Nick Gibb, sorry, and I hope they're up for it. Now, let me just mention programs that are coming up later today. The Twilight Show with Uther is looking at new teachers this evening, and then let me trail uh, Tom Rogers later in the week um, is talking to Monica Geldert, who you may know from TikTok, and I think she had a bit of a pile on last week, which wasn't her fault. Um, she is very funny. Don't miss that. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to say goodbye. I'll see you in a fortnight. Um, you may call this the morning break, but we're now ahead of you in Spain, which for me makes it La Hora de Vermut, and that's just where I'm going to go now. So adios and hasta luego. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.